Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name is Susanna Hellman, and it's been my privilege to be the co-curator of our exhibition, Cook and the Pacific. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal, Noonawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call our home. 250 years ago, the endeavour under the command of Lieutenant James Cook was several months into its voyage. It was to be the first of three Pacific voyages under Cook's command. Cook and the Pacific explores these voyages as meetings of peoples and their knowledge systems. These meetings change people on both sides. The library is privileged to hold a very rich collection of original material relating to Cook's Pacific voyages and is in an, in an ideal position to present an exhibition about these important voyages. Today, we are here to explore a different aspect of this story. Over the course of the day, we will hear about voyages and seafaring in the Pacific and elsewhere. And we are beginning in the Southern Ocean. This morning, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Joy McCann, an historian specializing in environmental and cultural history. She is based at the Center for Environmental History at the Australian National University School of History and has also worked in, as a public historian, researcher and curator in the cultural heritage museum and library sectors. Dr. McCann will speak about the intriguing stories of the Southern Ocean, demonstrating what it can teach us about our past and our future. She draws from sea captains' journals, explorers' letters, and whalers' logs, as well as her own research into the Antarctic region's natural and cultural histories. Please join me in welcoming Dr. McCann. Thank you for that introduction and welcome everyone. I'm delighted to be here and I'm going to take you to a very cool place now um, after the week we've had. I think we can do with some uh, ice and snow and wind. Um, we're of course a very long way from the Southern Ocean um, but I want you to imagine for a few minutes uh, for the next hour or so that we're in one of the stormiest um, and tempestuous regions on earth. I want to begin by introducing the physical nature of the Southern Ocean. Just to set the scene here, <laughs> I hope you don't feel seasick on this one. Um, and then to take a bit of a closer look at James Cook uh, and his second voyage into the Antarctic region. It's um, not a, a, a story that's as well known perhaps as the Endeavour and the, the voyage, his voyages through the Pacific, but I think it gives you a bit of an interesting slant both on his voyages and also on the early maritime exploration of these high southern latitudes. I'll also look a little bit at the aftermath of his voyage, um, what happened over the next uh, couple of centuries, and also to give you a sense of um, what this region holds in terms of its importance for us today. So I'm very much about looking at history in the way in which it reveals insights into some of the issues and ideas that are still prevalent today. So planet Earth is often referred to as a blue planet. I'm sure most of you have heard or seen the BBC documentary, Blue Planet, um, because the ocean in fact covers seven-tenths of the Earth's surface 
and contains about 97% of all its water. Much of it, of course, is in the Southern Hemisphere, as you can see here. This, this hemisphere is often referred to as the Ocean Hemisphere, and I really hadn't thought about that much until I started working on uh, the Southern Ocean. Um, I, th I guess a lot of our uh, education and, and um, perhaps our thinking about oceans is really focused more on the Atlantic and the Indian and the Pacific Oceans. But when you start to look further south, you realise how vast this ocean space is on Earth. So the Southern Ocean is the southernmost part of the planetary ocean. It's this polar perspective here I think is a really interesting one because it gives you an idea of the geography of um, this particular ocean. It is a circumpolar ocean. It flows completely around Antarctica. You'll see on this, uh, this perspective uh, there's the Antarctic circumpolar current and I'll talk about that in a moment. And also the sub-Antarctic front which is also known Yes? Ah, uh, yes. See if I can um, do this here. Sorry, just a moment. I'll just um, wait until... The, I think the controls are somewhere up there. Yes, I'm sure that it, it's much more interesting when you can actually see the slides. <laughs> So um, just going back to uh, talking about the, sub uh, the, sorry, the Antarctic Convergence, um, which is also known as the Subantarctic Front, it's marked here and it's a very important part of the Southern Ocean in that it's where the cold polar waters mix and merge with the um, waters of the An Atlantic, Pacific and Indian Oceans. Excuse me just a moment. <coughs> Um, so the convergence is a very fertile region because of this mixing of waters, water masses. Um, it it uh, is where whales and other marine creatures gather to feed on the nutrients that are upwelled from the deep. It's often referred to now as a biological frontier uh, because of this uh, immense fertility of this region. And of course it's where a lot of the early sealers and whalers uh, tended to um, focus their attentions uh, because of this concentration of marine life. So just talking about the Southern Ocean's boundaries um, isn't simple because of this meeting and merging of waters. And it was an issue I had to deal with first off when I was starting to do this research, just where is the Southern Ocean? And um, over the years, and I'm not going to talk a lot about it now, but over the years, different nations and uh, different organisations have actually decided, made their own boundaries. So it is still debated today exactly how far north the Southern Ocean reaches. Um, it also has different names. So a lot of people uh, I talk to in the Northern Hemisphere call it the Antarctic Ocean um, and they don't register the word Southern Ocean. But I chose Southern Ocean because it is the, the name I grew up with in South Australia. It certainly flowed all the way to Australia's southern shores. Uh, as I knew it, and I thought, well, I'm writing this book, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to call it what I think it, it is. Uh, but I also chose to use the term that the early sailors in this region knew it as um, the ocean south of the Great Capes. And I just put this image up here to show you 
where those great capes lie. There's Cape Horn, of course, off the coast of South America, the Cape of Good Hope off South Africa, Cape Lewin, southwestern WA, uh, Southeast Cape off Tasmania, and I was there last week actually uh, at Southeast Cape, and Southwest Cape off New Zealand. They're the great capes which, if you're a sailor, you may be familiar with, particularly if you're around the world yachty. Um, they are the great capes that people tick off on their um, on their list as they sail around the world, and they're, it's regarded very much as a rite of passage to have sailed past the Great Capes of the Southern Ocean. These were, of course, crucial landmarks, not only for sailors today, but for the early maritime explorers um, who were sailing on uh, with sailing ships and dependent on the winds uh, of this region for propelling their vessels. Um, I'm, this particular slide is looking at the uh, route of typically of the the clipper ships that used to um, sail south from Europe to the southern uh, nations and, and countries and colonies, land masses in the 19th century, um, propelled by some of the strongest winds on earth. And I just love those evocative names, the Roaring Forties, the Furious Fifties. And it's not marked here, but I can tell you they're called the Screaming Sixties in the uh, latitude 60 degrees south, uh, right around Antarctica. They're the, they are the strongest winds in the world. And of course they were using them in pursuit of faster shipping times to uh, reach the southern colonies, but of course many also came to grief because of those winds were incredibly powerful. This is Cape Horn off uh, South America, and it's the southernmost inhabited landmass around here, around Tierra del Fuego, um, and it's always been the most notorious of these capes for sailors. It's where the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, in fact, which is the largest current on Earth uh, that flows completely around the globe from west to east, uninterrupted by any major landmass, and carrying enough water, wait for this, to fill the world's rivers at least 150 times over. It's massive. And it squeezes through about 800 kilometre gap between the tip of South America and the Antarctic Peninsula. And that's why, one of the reasons why this has become one of the most notorious stretches of water in the world. Rounding the Horn was, in a particular way, a rite of passage for the sailing ships, and um, so many succumbed to its treacherous conditions that it became known as the sailor's graveyard. I have to say, this photo I took a couple of years ago, and it was behaving itself, it was a rather benign day, so it's a bit hard to get that sense of uh, the, the um, reputation of this region, but uh, it gives you an idea at least of what this part of the world looks like in terms of the landmass. There is also a memorial right on the tip uh, created by a Chilean sculptor and it's dedicated to the sailors who perished off the horn. Beyond the Great Capes, going south, we find ourselves in the vastness of the Southern Ocean. The only land between us now and Antarctica are the 20 or so tiny sub-Antarctic islands, most of them dark and forbidding mountains of volcanic rock protruding from the ocean. The Antarctic historian Bernadette Hintz has described them as like black pearls in the crown of Antarctica, which I think is a wonderful image, evocative image. But apart from these scattering, of, and they, very, they are really very tiny islands, there's virtually nothing but ocean and ice and some of the most powerful winds on Earth, as we've seen, and the myriad of creatures that call this region home. The 
This is one of the island groups, it's South Georgia, and this is a photo I took off um, on South Georgia in 2017. And it's early summer and it's breeding season. And the creatures in this area, the marine creatures, rely on the land to um, mate and breed and raise their young sufficient to face the oncoming winter. They have a very narrow window and it is absolutely um, a, a haven of wildlife on all of these subantarctic islands. Further south lies the massive continent of Antarctica, surrounded by great ice shelves that carve mass massive uh, tabular icebergs, and these set sail into the Southern Ocean, um, gradually melting as they reach the warmer waters. Some of them actually do reach as far as Cape Horn and um, before melting completely. Um, and it's important, I think, to understand something of the geography and the physical nature of the region to understand James Cook's remarkable uh, excursion into the Southern Ocean as far as the Antarctic Circle between 1772 and 75. Now, you may have seen uh, mention of it in the exhibition, but I think it is a, a fairly little-known story, uh, certainly in, in uh, relation to the, uh, his, his exploration of the Pacific. And, and uh, I think it's uh, one that's worth um, talking about a little bit and also to get an idea of just how incredibly... Um, amazing that voyage was in the very small sailing ships that he had with him or that he was sailing on. So in December 1772, Cook rounded the uh, Cape of Good Hope and was navigating southeast in search of Cape Circumcision, what we now know to be Bouvet Island, a tiny subantarctic island, first sighted by the French naval explorer, explorer in 1739. This voyage was Cook's second attempt to locate the Great Southern Land, a mythical landmass that had long been thought to exist at the southern half of the planet in order to counterbalance the landmasses of Europe and Asia in the north. The theory, which had been developed in the uh, second century um, by a Greek philosopher Ptolemy, um, uh, had uh, really um, been around for a long time. It was a very uh, remained a very... Um, uh, uh, popular sort of theory um, and this map is actually from 1570 um, and it's by Abraham Ortelius you might be familiar with this one it's one of the earliest modern maps showing, and it shows Terra Australis Nondum Cognita at the bottom which translated roughly to unknown southern land anchoring earth at its southern extremity in the region now known as the Antarctic and the Southern Ocean Alexander Dalrymple was the British Admiralty's first hydrographer. And it was he that commissioned Cook's voyages in the 18th century. He was himself a passionate advocate of Ptolemy's theory and published his own thesis of it in 1767, drawing on reports from early European navigators who had found their way into the Southern Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Of course, the promise of a new and unclaimed land, Southern land was irresistible to the imperial powers of Europe there were some who even promoted the idea of uh, the unknown southern land as a kind of El Dorado and depicted it on maps, uh, some of the early maps, as a richly fertile region and there were all sorts of animals and jungles at, at the, the southernmost end of the earth just waiting to be discovered. On his first voyage of maritime exploration, Cook had reached latitude 40 degrees south but did not succeed in locating the unknown southern land. He 
felt that there was a lot more still to be, to be discovered. He proposed this second voyage uh, that would circumnavigate the globe, this time from west to east, in search of it. And at this time, the vast expanse of the Southern Ocean, beyond the Great Capes, was, was largely uncharted. The concept of fixing a position on Earth's surface using imaginary lines parallel to the equator <clears throat> was well known. Latitude could be measured with a reasonable level of accuracy using a compass and cross staff. A simple device used to measure the elevation angle of the noontime sun above the horizon. Determining longitude, however, was far more difficult, particularly at sea uh, in this sort of region where there was very little way in the way of land. Um, it required an accurate means of measuring time on a moving vessel. Maritime nations were keen to solve the problem since many, any miscalculation of a ship's position at sea could and often did spell disaster. European navigate, uh, nations rather, began offering financial incentives from the early 16th century. In 1761, an amateur British clockmaker, John Harrison, made a breakthrough with his portable marine chronometer, a spring-driven clock known as H4. It could measure the degrees of longitude traversed during a sea journey by comparing local time at high noon to the absolute time set on the chronometer at the start of the voyage, i.e. in Greenwich. Cook took an accurate copy of Harrison's invention made by Larkham Kendall and this was called K1, together with three devices made by Arnold for testing during this second voyage. The British mathematician and astronomer William Wales, who was sent on Cook's voyage by the Board of Longitude to perform astronomical observations and report to the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, was also responsible for testing the accuracy of the experimental marine timekeepers under a variety of conditions on the open ocean. Arnold's timepieces eventually succumbed to the freezing conditions, but K1 survived. According to Cook, and I quote, Mr. Kendall's watch exceeded the expectations of its most zealous advocate, and by being now and then corrected by lunar observations, has been our faithful guide through all the vicissitudes of climate. The problem of longitude may have been overcome, but the Southern Ocean's notorious weather still prevailed. By December 1772, the resolution was floundering in tempestuous conditions and being driven far eastward of the intended course. So Cook dismissed any hope of locating Cape Circumcision and found himself dealing instead with a dramatic drop in temperature at latitude 48 degrees south, causing the death of most of the livestock that he'd brought on board at the Cape of Good Hope. We now recognise that, in fact, he was sailing in the region known as the Antarctic Convergence that I mentioned earlier, where there's a very distinct drop of temperature, air and sea temperature. He recorded in his journal the prodigious and vast swells, as he called them, but the giant swells were also just the beginning of his challenges. At latitude 51 degrees south, the vessels caught sight of their first icebergs and were soon surrounded by an immense field of ice, as, he, as Cook wrote in his journal. They turned north from 55 degrees south, then circled south again, forever surrounded by floating ice, which Cook surmised was what Bouvet had mistakenly thought was in fact an island. At 61 degrees south, Cook ordered three boats into the ice uh, field to collect loose pieces that could be melted down for fresh water. Then at 66 degrees south, the ships crossed the Antarctic Circle 
the first European vessels to do so. And this image here, which is a classic image uh, by William Hodges, who accompanied Cook as the artist on the voyage, um, uh, shows uh, actually they're shooting some of the seabirds because, of course, they were supplementing their diet with um, meat. And also, uh, in this same time, they were collecting pieces of ice, and, and Cook writes quite a bit about that process of collecting ice, which they found surprisingly fresh uh, in, at, at some of the ice. <clears throat> Enveloped in thick fog, um, the captains of the Resolution and Adventure found it exceedingly difficult to avoid colliding with these ice islands. The Adventure, under the command of Tobias Furneaux, lost contact with the Resolution and was forced to sail on alone to Tasmania before heading to the pre-arranged meeting point of Queen Charlotte Sound in New Zealand. Cook, meanwhile, sailed southeast, tracing along the edge of the ice field before also making for Queen Charlotte Sound, where the two ships uh, rendezvoused in early 1773. After several months exploring the South Pacific, um, the two ships were again separated. Uh, this time, Furneaux decided to head north, returning to Britain a year before Cook. Uh, who steered the resolution toward, southward to resume his search for the southern continent. He crossed the Antarctic Circle for the second time before turning north to avoid the freezing conditions, but not one to be deterred. He then made yet another great southerly loop, crossing the circle for the third time on the 26th of January, 1774. On board the resolution was a Prussian-born pastor turned naturalist, Johann Reinhold Forster. And most people are familiar, of course, with Joseph Banks, uh, who accompanied Cook on his uh, voyage on the Endeavour with a staff of eight, uh, including two naturalists and two artists, whose role was to record and observe and sample the plants and animals, and also record the, the landscapes and peoples that they encountered during the journey. Banks expected that he would accompany Cook on this second voyage, but the British Admiralty um, refused to meet his demands for staff and accommodation. In fact, there's a story about Banks having uh, organised for the ship to be enlarged uh, to accommodate his needs. And that was too heavy, it was going to be un unseaworthy. So um, the Admiralty ordered that those fittings be taken out again and Banks withdrew from the voyage. But it was Forster who found himself aboard the Resolution as the expedition naturalist armed with a library of 18th century uh, journals of voyages and natural history, and assisted by his son, Georges, um, shown here, and they're obviously not in Antarctica here, <laughs> in much more um, tropical place, uh, and Georges was himself a talented artist too. Now, Forster proved to be a diligent observer of the natural environment of the Southern Ocean, but he was a fractious passenger, and I don't blame him, actually. Um, beyond the Cape, as the resolution entered a region of treacherous gales, thick fog and floating ice, he complained bitterly about his cramped accommodation, which flooded in the mountainous sea, and expressed his dismay that men of science, such as himself, from, and I quote, the most enlightened nation in the world, should, re should receive such treatment. He was miserable with rheumatic pain, and blamed Cook for prolonging his suffering in these gruelling conditions. He recorded in his journal that, uh, should go back, our whole course from the Cape of Good Hope to New Zealand was a series of hardships which had never been experienced before. 
We had the perpetual severities of a rigorous climate to cope with. Our seamen and officers were exposed to rain, sleet, hail and snow. Our rigging was constantly encrusted with ice, which cut the hands of those who were obliged to touch it. Our provision of fresh water was to be collected in lumps of ice, floating on the sea, where the cold and the sharp saline elements alternately numbed and scarify the sailors' limbs. We were perpetually exposed to the danger of running against huge masses of ice, which filled the immense Southern Ocean. Forster's journal, I think, gives us, uh, it's, it's quite entertaining and certainly worth reading. It also gives us rare personal insights into the experience of long-distance voyaging at this, in this period, the nature of the Southern Ocean's physical environment, and also, interestingly, the ideas that prevailed about the natural world at that time. <clears throat> he theorised about whether the phenomena he observed might offer clues as to the existence of a southern continent. He noted changes in the depth, colour, saltiness and temperature of the ocean water and contemplated at length the character and significance of the large islands of ice they encountered even in midsummer. On Boxing Day 1773, he counted 186 masses of ice on the horizon. Forster's personal observations also served to validate another of his theories and one that was to resurface in subsequent scientific voyages in the high southern latitudes over the 19th century. Like many observers of the natural world in the Enlightenment period, he believed that Earth's physical variations represented a hierarchy whereby as one travelled south from the fertile tropics, the world became progressively more debased and sterile. In Forster's view, nowhere was the debased nature of the Earth's extremities more manifest than in the torpid and slow-moving seals and penguins he observed languishing on the ice islands of the Southern Ocean. Cook seemed inclined to agree, certainly when he charted the coastline of South Georgia that we saw earlier with all the penguins, he, um, and he took possession of it uh, in the name of His Majesty, uh, the King of Britain. He, note, he wrote that it was too savage and horrible to be worthy of further examination. He basically didn't venture into the island at all. Quite a contrast with the luxurious natural world he'd encountered in the Pacific Islands on this same voyage. But for Cook, the four months spent navigating around tabular icebergs and storms in the Southern Ocean, um, the journey was a success. He was finally convinced that there was no habitable landmass in the high southern latitudes and uh, no terra australis nondum cognita. He wrote in his journal, I had now made the circuit of the southern ocean in a high latitude and traversed it in such a manner as to leave not the least room for the possibility of there being a continent unless near the pole and out of reach of navigation. Thus I flatter myself that the intention of the voyage has in every respect been fully answered. The southern hemisphere sufficiently explored and a final end put to the searching after a southern continent which has at times engrossed the attention of some of the maritime powers for near two centuries past and the geographers of all ages. The wonderful globe um, in the exhibition next door shows the tracks of Cook's three voyages. It's a wonderful sort of um, moving feast of as the globe revolves and you can trace the three voyages and just the incredible um, distances that were travelled on those three voyages. And here is Cook's own chart of the Southern Hemisphere published in his journal in 1777. 
It's a little hard to see, of course, but it just gives you an idea of the fact that he did plot all his course, uh, courses on the map. Now, um, the publication of Cook's journals uh, created a dramatic shift in the way the Southern Ocean was perceived in Europe, basically from an imagined El Dorado to a tempestuous reality. His experience of the rich marine life in the subantarctic islands sparked a frenzied rush of sealers to the remote beaches and uncharted waters of the Southern Ocean. In 1776, for example, when Cook dropped anchor in Christmas Harbour in the uh, Kerguelen archipelago, which is a kind of halfway between uh, South Africa and Australia, but much further south, he described the plentiful penguins and fur seals that were so tame that his men were able to take as many as they pleased. A sealing vessel would land a sealing gang on a remote island beach where they would remain for months at a time until they had killed every animal in sight before being picked up by their ship or perhaps rescued by another passing vessel and in some cases never rescued at all. These were incredibly remote places and they were in a dot in the ocean. They would camp in caves or construct crude beach shelters from stone and ship's timbers or ribs from whale skeletons covering them with tarpaulins or seal skins to keep out the worst of the weather. Archaeologists have identified the remains of about 50 such shelters in the South Shetlands off the Antarctic Peninsula, offering clues as to how these sealers managed to survive and work in such extreme environments. But we're also learning about just how devastating the sealing uh, era was on the seals of the Southern Ocean. Within eight years of the discovery of the South Shetlands in 1819 by William Smith, the captain of the British merchant vessel um, Williams, an estimated 144 sealing gangs had converged on those islands, sailing from New England, Britain and the Australian colonies. Most were there for the first three summers, taking at least 300,000 and perhaps as many as 900,000 fur seal skins. We never really know. It was a very secretive industry um, and records uh, are relatively difficult to access, uh, particularly for this region. The southern fur seal populations declined from an estimated one to two million, we never really know how many there were, to a few hundred individuals by the time the fur sealing industry collapsed in the 1830s. Sealers began turning their attentions to the blubber-rich southern elephant seals to meet the growing demand for um, the... Uh, lighting oil, machine lubrication, paint and soap, and so on. Uh, that was basically the Southern Ocean creatures were fueling the um, Industrial Revolution in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. And also the elephant seals, as it was uh, called elephanting, was the, the term used. It went hand in hand with the growth of the Southern whaling industry from uh, sort of in the about the, the mid 19th century or so. And that was to have the most dramatic impact of all in the Southern Ocean. Large numbers of whales migrate into these waters along ancestral pathways to feed on the smorgasbord of Antarctic krill in the nutrient-rich rich waters. And I'm talking here about baleen whales in particular. By the First World War, South Georgia had become the centre of the southern whaling industry, with no less than six whaling stations operating from this tiny island alone. The impact of whaling in the Southern Ocean was, was truly devastating. 
A scientific review of whale sightings around South Georgia undertaken between 1979 and 1998 noted that the humpback whales became commercially extinct by 1915, Antarctic blue whales by 1935, and fin and say whales by 1960. It's it concluded in the report that all of the southern whale species that once frequented the waters had become rare as a result of this industry. The giant blue whale, the largest creature to have ever lived, uh, was reduced from around 300,000 individuals across the Southern Ocean to just 6,000. That's an estimate, of course. And even today, their numbers remain very low. I know there is a terrific research going on off um, the south coast of Victoria, uh, a blue whale study uh, run by a scientist called Pete Gill, which I love that name. Uh, he, uh, he's um, doing a tremendous amount of work every season and they, um, they uh, are surveying southern whales, uh, the blue whales as they migrate around this region. Scientific expeditions uh, from different nations also followed in Cook's wake in the 19th century, combining, as Cook did, both maritime exploration and ocean science. The ice cap of the Antarctic continent is perpetually dry and frozen and is in fact a virtual desert where only a few species of lichen and mosses and so on and insects can survive. In contrast, the southern ocean that surrounds it is teeming with life above and below the surface as the scientists um, aboard the Challenger expedition found. Um, <clears throat> this Challenger expedition um, was undertaken in the 1870s. It was a British uh, expedition and it was one of the largest and most important scientific voyages of this era. Over four years, they circumnavigated the earth and measured water temperatures, salinity and depth and collected marine samples from all the world's oceans, including the Southern Ocean. And a lot of these specimens that they collected are now held by the Natural History Museum in London. But by the end of the 19th century, the international focus had shifted to exploring the Antarctic continent. Most people know about polar explorers like um, Scott, Robert, Robert Falcon Scott and Amundsen, and both of whom trekked across the Antarctic ice sheets, striving to be the first to reach the South Pole. Or Ernest Shackleton, whose ship was crushed by the heaving masses of floating sea ice, which is a wonderful story in its own right. But it was the ocean that was of the greatest interest to these um, explorers and the naturalists and scientists that accompanied them. And uh, it was, um, uh, you can see here one of the laboratories that was set up and they were exploring of course the continent but also more particularly the ocean around the continent. Just as an aside, I was thrilled to uh, discover when I was doing my research for this book uh, on the Southern Ocean a slim blue book um, in the National Library's special collections. And it was the Antarctic Manual for the use of expedition of, of the expedition of 1901. Uh, it was published by the Royal Ge Geographical Society for the British National Antarctic Expedition between 1901 and 1904, which of course was led by Scott. And this particular copy um, sailed aboard the Discovery, Scott's vessel, and was later donated to the library. It's just a wonderful gem that the library holds in its collection and one of many. The Challenger uh, findings had not yet become known at this point. Uh, they, they, there were 50 volumes of research that they published over many years from the Challenger. 
in the 1870s. But this book, uh, then when it was published, represented the sum scientific knowledge of the time of the Southern Ocean and the Antarctic region. So Scott sailed with this uh, and the people aboard, um, like Edward Wilson, the doctor who was also informally the naturalist as, or, or the scientist aboard as well, um, would have read this and um, uh, it covered everything from climate to terrestrial magnetism, all written by, quote, as it says here um, in, in the book itself, leading men of science. It also had, incidentally, a, a, a frontispiece of uh, ice nomenclature, so it was about 70 terms for ice, mostly from the Arctic, which actually didn't really translate quite so well in the Southern Ocean because the ice in the Antarctic region is often quite different, but um, it's worth reading if you get a chance to look at it. By the mid-20th century, the Southern Ocean increasingly became the focus of international scientific research. We now understand much more about the importance of its ecosystem and the movement of its great water masses in driving the world's ocean circulation and its role as a barometer of climate change. And I, I talk a lot about that in the book, but for today I've sort of just um, summarised it briefly. But it is a big story, the history of science, scientific research in the Southern Ocean. And of course it continues to this day and has huge implications for the future understanding of climate change and um, what's happening in our marine environments. Culturally, though, the Southern Ocean's remoteness, I think, has tended to render it invisible for most of us, um, beyond the reach of human affairs somehow. It's just so remote and so wild, who, whoever goes there, except perhaps for the scientists, the odd round-the-world yachts person, or um, a tourist to Antarctica. So that was really one of the reasons why I wrote the book, uh, Wild Sea, um, because I really wanted to capture some of the stories, what I think we need the stories uh, that reconnect us with this little known part of the planet, not just as an ecosystem, but because we really, humans rely on it for its invisible but powerful currents and winds and the great seasonal heartbeat of its ice and the role it plays in absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. In fact, it's been described as the lungs of the planet because of its vast surface and um, prolific plant and animal life. One of the ideas that struck me when I was uh, researching the book was the way in which everything about the Southern Ocean is in fact interconnected. During the 1980s, for example, you might be aware of this, the um, scientists and policymakers agreed to create an international convention to protect the Southern Ocean as a giant ecosystem. It came after the formation of the Antarctic Treaty in the 1950s and um, this convention was called the uh, Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. This is in the period when uh, whales were, uh, had declined, whale numbers had declined to such an extent there was a great concern. There was also a lot of particular conventions and regulations around whaling. But there was also concern about the future of Antarctic krill, which is at the base of the ecosystem uh, because it was being harvested still is harvested, but now under stricter regulations as a source of protein. Um, there was a concern that if these tiny shrimp-like creatures the size of, hu of, human, of a human thumb disappeared because of uncontrolled harvesting, as the seals and whales had been, so would every other living creature that depended on the ocean for its survival. 
And I think this made me realise even more so that far from being remote and a world apart, the Southern Ocean's a very real part and powerful part of our, our world. So I wanted to tell its stories as a way of helping us to see its natural history as an integral part of our human history. I wanted to show that science and maritime exploration went hand in hand. It's, it's a long part of this history. That um, the ocean has been and continues to be vulnerable to our activities. And I also wanted to celebrate the creatures that live there to recognise their interconnectedness with us and to tell the stories of the people who have lived with the Southern Ocean or ventured into it and who have been changed forever by that experience. I just want to finish now with a short extract that I wrote in my own journal when I um, went on a voyage to the Southern Ocean as far as Antarctica in, in 2017. Apart from grey swells and windswept clouds, there is little to catch the eye on the surface of this most notorious ocean passage. The light of the Southern Ocean plays tricks with the eyes, obscuring the horizon so that sea and sky meld. Sometimes it seems that we're no longer voyaging between sea and sky, but have become enshrouded by both. The pictures I have held in my mind come to the surface now, inhabiting the great expanses of the high southern latitudes. In the not quite darkness of these latitudes in summer, I wonder if this is what the early sailors meant by looming. I don't know if you've heard that term, but it's, um, it comes up a lot in early sailing literature. Seeing things beyond the limits of normal vision. I consider the krill swarming around us as they come to the surface to feed. Facing westward, I sense the powerful currents pummeling around the hull. I reflect on the stillness in the ice, the lulling rock of the ship, my admiration for the migration of birds and whales, the clarity of thought in the polar air. And perhaps the greatest gift of the Southern Ocean is a sense of connection, catching a leopard seal's eye, marvelling at a swarm of krill, hearing the triumphant cacophony of king penguins in breeding season, absorbing the unearthly blue of an iceberg, admiring the majesty of the blue whale, not that I actually saw one, I have to say, sadly, um, and being left speechless by the extraordinary power and pu pureness of purpose in the flight of the wandering albatross. And I did see one of these and it was, I'll never forget it touched me deeply. It may not be possible to feel a sense of belonging in this vast, complex, fluid environment, but it, may, it seems that we can have a sense of connection with ocean and wind and ice and the myriad of living things. And ultimately, I think we're all caught within the Southern Ocean's embrace. Thank you. Please join me in thanking Dr. McCann for that fascinating presentation. We do have time for a few questions um, from the audience. Please raise your hands and a microphone will be brought to you. If you could please wait for the microphone before answering, um, before asking your question for the benefit of all your, um, our guests. Thank you. Thank you. That was a wonderful talk. 
that you Thank could you. convey so much from your wonderful book. But one of the questions which, are, which remains unanswered for me is about the icebergs being used by Cook's crew to uh, supply their water supply. Um, what I want to know, and I can't find out, is are the varieties of icebergs in which some are land constructed, are they all pure water? Thank you. So the, there are um, different ice formations. There's the ice that comes down from glaciers into the ocean and um, that ice shelf I mentioned and the, and the icebergs that break off those ice shelves surrounding Antarctica are of course fresh. Um, there's also the sea ice that freezes on the water itself and, and there's this wonderful um, process that goes on and I, I witnessed it uh, off the side of the ship um, where the sea, the sea starts to freeze and it forms pancake ice, which actually to me looked just like lotus blossoms floating in the water. And then gradually they bump together. You must remember the ocean is moving all the time and the currents are pushing the ice together and they push up to each other in the pancake ice pieces, end up forming one larger piece. And then you get whole areas of sea ice and it gradually freezes across much of the ocean surface in winter and it's, it uh, melts to about a sixth of its size in summer. Uh, the scientists uh, that work in this area have done beautiful um, videos showing the pulsation of the ice, which is why I refer to it as a heartbeat of Antarctica, the ice freezing and, and melting. But to answer your question about the uh, fact that they were using ice for drinking water, um, there's obviously there is some ice that's salty, but uh, with the formation of ice in the sea, uh, as the sea freezes, it expels the salt. And in fact, that's an incredibly important part. I'm not an oceanographer, and it took me some time to get my head around this. But uh, as I understand it, um, the salt is heavy. It, it falls into the deeper water. So some of that ice uh, that's expelled the water, uh, sorry, the, the salt has become fresher. Um, they had to look for it. It's not always readily available. Some ice is salty still. But the um, process of, um, of freezing and releasing the salt um, creates currents under the sea in the deep ocean. And in fact, off the coast of Antarctica, as I understand it, the, uh, it forms great waterfalls as this powerful current forms with that constant movement of melting ice. The melting ice is crucial to ocean circulation is what I'm trying to say. It actually is part of that process. So it has, um, it has that sort of uh, other dimension to that whole story of how sea ice and um, the ice generally in Antarctica forms and the, the roles it plays in the ecosystem of the region. I just wanted to ask you a question. I was down there in 2017 as well. But um, is the ice in Antarctica increasing compared to the, the one in the, the Arctic? Um, I understood that uh, the Antarctic is actually increasing. I mean, we couldn't get into the Weddell Sea because of the amount of ice, and yet in the northern hemisphere it's diminishing. Yes, in fact, I believe... Because Antarctica is actually has two parts to it. Part of it is uh, deep down is, is rock, and part of it is very, very deep ice. It's, it's in two sections. And um, in fact, when you look at a, 
perhaps a geological map of, Antar of Antarctica, you'll see that line running right through. Um, and one part of Antarctica is freezing, as I understand it, and the other part is actually losing ice. It's my, I'm looking at a marine biologist sitting in front of me. Um, but um, so, in fact, there's still a lot not known about what's happening with the ice. There's, uh, ice, uh, that's one of the areas of research that's going on right now. We know so little about some aspects of the region, and uh, that's what I think is so interesting about the Southern Ocean and Antarctica is that in effect, even though it's been sort of out of sight, out of mind for such a long time, people who go down there now, uh, you know, it's a the research they're doing is of, of vital importance and there's huge international collaborations of scientists working to discover just this. But my understanding is it's not a clear picture. Some is melting, some is freezing more. So it's a, a very, un and I guess it's to do with the changing uh, temperatures of the ocean itself. So obviously we're... Uh, there's impacting, particularly the Antarctic Peninsula, I believe, is, is at great risk because it's surrounded, it's much further north, surrounded by more ocean than the rest of Antarctica. Um, but I know that one of the problems, uh, when I was there, I, had this, I saw the Weddell Sea too frozen and couldn't get into Deception Island, into the whaling station in Deception Island because it was all frozen. But um, one of the big problems is it's raining more, particularly on the Antarctic Peninsula and that's affecting the penguins' ability to find rock to lay their eggs because it's creating more ice on the rock so that it's much further down and the penguins are finding it difficult to actually fulfil their normal cycle of breeding and laying eggs. So it's, it, I'm sorry, I'm not a great expert on the ice uh, and where it, you know, exactly what, how it works in terms of the, um, the current scientific um, theories, but... It's certainly an area I think is worth keeping an eye on and, and looking at how much uh, more we can learn from the science that's going on right now. I know there's a couple of big projects looking at just that. Uh, thank you, Joy, for a wonderful talk. It's really interesting. Thank you. I can um, give a little bit more information about the state of the uh, Antarctic ice. Yep. Uh, the sea ice... Um, extent last year, last summer, was uh, 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 an all-time minimum, and this year it looks like it's heading in the same direction. Um, and recent research has found that um, the, uh, with the warming ocean, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the ice cap is being melted from, from underneath, and expeditions to um, uh, the world's largest glacier, the Totten Glacier, yeah. has found um, accelerating loss from underneath. Mm. So that paints a, uh, um, a, a very dangerous picture. Thank you very much, Joy. Wonderful talk. I'd like to take it back to literature. Mm. Now, was there an impact from the journals of Cook into the consciousness? Like, I'm thinking of the rhyme of the ancient mariner. <laughs> um, yes. In fact, I have to try and reach back into my memory, but I did research this early on. There is a direct link between Cook's voyage and... Uh, the writing of the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which I found intriguing. There's no definitive 
um, conclusion about it. It's still a case of speculation by literary scholars about the origins of the ideas of Coleridge's poem, which I'm presuming most people would be familiar with. Um, but uh, William Wales was Coleridge's maths tutor. Uh, so there was a, a link there. But the other story I read, which I did write a little bit about in the book, was that Coleridge and uh, Wordsworth were looking at ways to make money and coming up with ideas for writing that would capture the public imagination. And Wordsworth was familiar with a story of one of the shipwrecked, um, one of the, um, sorry, one of the, vo the early voyages in the, around the uh, coast of South America. Um, a, a person by the name of George Shelbock, who was the captain of a vessel, whose uh, second, whose mate, I think, second mate or something, had Simon Hatley, I do remember the name, uh, had shot an albatross, and shortly after that the ship was wrecked. So there, the, I suspect, as with all literature, there was a kind of a, you know, a fertile kind of range of, of ideas that formed uh, for Coleridge to write the poem. But uh, certainly I found it absolutely intriguing that so much literature has been written about the Southern Ocean and the region because this was an era when it was all just being discovered. So in the European mind at least, uh, would have been ripe for that kind of imaginative um, storytelling. Thank you, Joy. That was lovely. <coughs> Pardon me, I've got a cold. Um, I think I was saying to you before, I loved reading your book. I'm not a science at all. Um, it was a combination, I think, of science and lyricism with which you write and that word looming. And I think that that's what happened to me. Like you said, it's sort of seeing beyond what you can see, you know, the sailors who ventured. And I think as a result of your book and the way you write, it does loom within the reader for me. The other thing I just comment on is that it was the Victorian era where everybody collected stuff mm. and had it in their, I don't know what they called it, their parlour or their dining room. And when they entertained, they'd sort of show people around their cabinets. So it was this sort of mindset of talking amongst mm. well-educated people. And I think that that's possibly a reason why you had people like the poets and all that kind of thing mm. talking. Yeah. But thank you so much. I enjoyed your book oh, so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. I might just say they were the cabinet of cabinets of curiosities that in the Victorian era that certain particularly middle class, you know, homes would have. And it was a way of showing off, you know, collections from all over the world, particularly in the British Empire, this idea of um, or, and other empires, northern empires, because the word itself comes from Germany. But um, it... it um, uh, what I found intriguing was that there was a, there was a specialist um, uh, presenter of slides, a slide maker in England, who produced slides, microscopic slides, of diatoms from the Southern Ocean. I just found that story absolutely amazing. So people were able to see microscopic, uh, with, a, with the use of obviously of a microscope in the lounge room, um, able to see these slides and see what you know, inhabited the, the, the oceans. Uh, because, of course, the depths of the ocean, and I haven't even begun to talk about ocean depths, but um, that was obviously a complete unknown, and the Challenger expedition started to find 
the, the big challenge for Challenger in the 1870s was to determine whether life forms, how far down in the ocean life forms existed, because it was a, a prevailing theory that after a certain point in the deep dark um, beyond light, that nothing existed. But in fact, as we now know, it's a very rich um, environment, and thanks to Blue Planet for pointing that out to the world, you know, it's a it's a, a really interesting area of research. But I think we need to come back to the cabinet of curiosities. That's my that's my um, lesson out of this book. We need to come back to this idea of a fascination with what's in our natural world. Thank you very much for your comments. Thank you, Joy. I just wanted to check with you, are there absolutely no Indigenous sources or references in relation to the Southern Ocean? I'm glad you asked that, thank you. I talk a little bit about that in my book and perhaps the story that pr profoundly affected me was um, the story of the Murning people from the Great Australian Bight and I received permission from the elder Bunalori to tell the story. Um, and um, it is a, an intriguing story and I'm sure it's replicated across the Southern Hemisphere, but it really is about um, the in Murning, indigenous Murning people's ancestral relationships with the Southern right whale. And uh, they migrate, as you know, around the coast of Australia and they uh, sometimes, the, the Great Australian Bight is one of their nurseries, so the mothers and calves come there to rest and feed uh, during their migration. Um, the, for the Murning people, that uh, the whale is their ancestral, is their ancestor, Jidara. Uh, and so there's a, an, a wonderful story and I love the fact that, uh, that Bunalori was has been very active in telling that story worldwide, including in a film that he made um, with in conjunction with a whole lot of other people, including elders from around the world, Indigenous elders, about the importance of relationships between Indigenous people and the marine creatures, particularly whales and dolphins. Uh, it's called Whale Dreaming, if you ever get to see that. It's a wonderful film. And uh, so I felt um, very strongly that I wanted to... Um, uh, include that in my book in a respectful way and to show that these uh, relationships are current existing today and continue on and and um, in fact the Murning people are very active in the fight against oil installation in the Great Australian Bight because it, if there's a oil uh, leak from installations that are proposed it will destroy that whale nursery uh, so um, there's a strong conservation message coming through that as well and uh, a strong sense of uh, custodianship of that, of that part of this, what I call the Southern Ocean. There is also other stories from South America and from, from the uh, Tierra del Fuego region uh, and, um, the, and, and New Zealand. I, I wasn't able to do much research on South Africa um, but, you know, for me, that's just part of an ongoing process and I hope other people will continue that work. Thank you. Um, just one last question. Um, Thank you. Um, I know there is some tourism in Antarctica itself and also in South Georgia, but am I right in thinking that 
broadly speaking, the, the islands you mentioned, like Bouvet, Kerguelen, they're pretty much off limits apart from um, specialist uh, scientific or meteorological um, uh, visits. Yes, that's quite right. Um, the uh, Kerguelen and Bouvet, and uh, uh, there's a few other islands, Marion, no, sorry, those two in particular are part of the French Antarctic Territory. Um, and they're very much a scientific research basis. Most of those islands do have a base on them for that reason, but they're very seasonal, obviously, because of the conditions. Uh, Australia's Antarctic Territory encompasses Macquarie and Heard and McDonald Islands. Um, I believe my understanding is there are tours to Macquarie Island um, and obviously the Antarctic Peninsula is one of the main sort of uh, areas that ships, tourist ships sail to. There are, there are na different national um, scientific bases around the whole region and uh, on the tour for anyone who's been down to that area you will see some of the, um, the bases I think around the Antarctic Peninsula, a lot of them are Argentinian or Chilean and other um, South American countries have got bases around there. But having said that, um, so yes, there, there are limited opportunities to get onto some of these islands. I think the South African islands, Marion Island, Prince Edward Island, similarly only for scientists or people doing uh, feral animal eradication. A lot of these early sailors and uh, sealers and sailors um, and whalers deposited, you know, rats unintentionally probably um, and other animals and they've been going through a lot of eradication processes because they destroy the ecosystem on those islands. Um, but yes, that's quite right. It's actually hard for most people to actually get to them. But there are some wonderful websites now that show a lot about what these islands are about, what the science is being, you know, what science is being conducted on them and around them. So yeah, it's um, if you do ever get an opportunity to go on any of these voyages, they are they are very, uh, you know, it is a very moving experience. I think to be in that region, it's very special. Mm. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. However, copies of Wild Sea are available um, from the library's bookshop this morning with a 10% discount, and Dr. McCann has kindly agreed um, to sign copies of her books. I also invite you to take another look at Cook in the Pacific in our exhibition gallery, visit Beauty Rich and Rare upstairs on level four, or have a look at our TARPA exhibition in our treasures gallery. I'd like to acknowledge the support of the First Nations peoples who shared their knowledge and culture with us as we developed Cook in the Pacific. I thank the international and Australian lenders who permitted their extraordinary collections to be displayed here in Canberra. And I thank our partners, the Australian Government, for providing significant funding, including through the National Collecting Institution's Touring Outreach Program and the Australian Government International Exhibitions Insurance Program, ACTU-AGL, the Pratt Foundation, the Kenyan Foundation and Foxtel's History Channel. Dr McCann's lecture was the first in a series of three lectures, all of which will be presented here at the library today. At 12pm, Victor Briggs will deliver a talk on the role of Indigenous seafarers, and at 2pm, Dr James Hunter and Kieran Hostie will discuss the search for the endeavour. Please, please feel free to join us back here in the theatre for the remaining presentations. Please join me in thanking Dr McCann for this morning's fabulous presentation. Thank you.